Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. At long last, the World Cup seems to finally be upon us. And as we count down the days, there's a ton of speculation about whose names will be on the roster, how the team will actually line up. To unpack all this, I'm bringing on a man who's had a lot of job titles within American soccer, I think. Lately, he's caught a lot of fame as being one of the uh, the laminated bunch uh one of the ones that uh i guess inspired uh austin fc to go to the semifinals. he is the editor and contributor to backheel he is joe lowry joe thank you for joining the show sam thanks for having me on i i do think all of us that were on josh wolf's little laminated prediction sheet we should be getting like nice letters and packages from austin fc and from their fans all right joe let's jump into the u.s men's national team let's let's start out with, with a tactics question sure um something that has i i think infuriated me since september uh is this idea that it seems like the narrative surrounding greg berhalter from 2019 till now uh was that early on in his career he uh, sacrificed a little pragmatism in order for this style of play, this system, this possession style uh, that really frustrated a, a lot of American soccer fans. Throughout World Cup qualifying, it seemed like he was gearing a lot more pragmatic. We were playing the ball out of the back a lot less. We were getting forward. We were getting vertical. And I think that climax for me, whenever he had his interview with uh, Hercules Gomez of ESPN, and Herc asked him, you know, what, what should other teams playing the U.S. in the World Cup be worried about? And he talked about the press. You know, we, we have a scary press. We're going to be relentless. We're going to get after teams. And then in September, we play against Japan. We play against Saudi Arabia. And we do not press. We uh, possess the ball out of the back. We seem to be uh, very similar to what we saw in 2019 at the beginning of the Greg Berhalter era. So, Joe, what happened in September? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question, Sam. The U.S. struggled heavily. That's not breaking any new ground here in those games. They were weirdly reliant on having the ball and building up. And, and it wasn't like, okay, we're going to build from the back and do it well, right? It, it didn't look like they've been building for the last almost four years to accomplish that task, right? It, you couldn't tell that this was some polished effort. It wasn't, right? It was Luca De La Torre not, not pulling wide enough to create space for a pass from Zimmerman to Brendan Aarons. And it was Weston McKennie's sloppy touches or the center back's poor distribution, right? That game against Japan, I think, is the one we're all thinking of. It was hard to watch, right? And it didn't feel like it was either a step in the right direction for the possession scheme or a, a useful World Cup training exercise at all, frankly. And so it, it was difficult to watch. We had, we have a new, a new podcast coming out for Backheel called The Backheel Show. And I talked with Greg Velasquez of the Scuff Podcast uh, for an episode that'll be out next week. And, and basically, he was talking about, it seems like, and one of the takeaways from September is the U.S.'s system, quote-unquote, right, system capital S, is so reliant on personnel, right, more than it is this deeply ingrained philosophy in the pool. I think, it's that, I think that's a great takeaway from Greg in that regard, and I'll, I'll steal it here, I'll parrot it here, because we really haven't seen this U.S. team adopt, uh, you know, Greg Berhalter's vision from day one, or, or there's some sort of gap between his instruction and his vision and what we're seeing. And I don't know where that gap is coming and who's responsible for it. But Sam, September was not pretty. And I don't think it really did much to prepare the U.S. for Qatar. Football is back and Bet Online remains your number one source for all your football betting needs this season. You'll find the latest odds, matchup info, player news, and game trends. And as your continued source for all wagering info, Bet Online features live betting, free contests, live scores, and giveaways all season long. 
Always the fastest and easiest way to bet all your favorite sports and events like MLB, MMA, tennis, boxing, and even golf. Head to betonline.ag to join and receive your 100% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Make sure to use promo code BELIEVE to receive your rewards. Bet online, where the game starts. It didn't do much to prepare the U.S. for Qatar, and it didn't do much for the enthusiasm of the fan base. I think true. Uh, a lot of people that are, have been fans of this team and following it, and we're excited after some of the results of the summer friendlies. You know, after that September window, just a lot of dread, a lot of uh, lack of enthusiasm, a, a lot of uh, the reality that this could be a, a forgetful World Cup, which in the buildup in the last four years, we were circling this as it could be a coming out party for American mm. soccer for this this new wave of players. Now I did, I was listening to, I, I believe it was in soccer. We trust, I believe it was uh, Heath Pierce that uh, said something to the extent of um, this was a training exercise to see, to give some other looks to the U S opponents um, and, and potentially uh, give us some other things that we can do in Qatar, but it, it was kind of a failure. Um, my thought, I, I just want to put this out to you to see sure. what you think about it. Uh, my thought was, I, I think, as we were heading to that camp and, and the rocks start falling for us, you know, um, it turns out Christian Pulisic's not able to start that game. Uh, Eunice Moose is not going to be in the camp. Um, uh, Anthony Robinson's not going to be in that camp. And it goes from uh, a, what was supposed to be a tune-up camp to all of a sudden a tryout camp, mm. um, which I think was not the plan originally. Um, and then you have the situation where Gio Reyna is available but he's, is he available? He's kind of available. He's 45 minutes available. And I, I think at that point, I, my guess is that Greg decided it's probably not the best idea to put Gio on the field and have him run around pressing. Um, and, and instead, it would be better just to, to get as much as you can with Gio on the field with those other guys. I don't know. Am, am I reaching? What, what What are your thoughts? I don't think you're reaching as far as Gio Reyna goes, right? I'm, I'm even skeptical about him starting any of the games in the group stage at the World Cup. I know he's healthy right now as we record. Maybe that's changed in, in two minutes from now, an hour from now, whatever. I think he's probably coming off the bench, certainly for the Wales game. Maybe that changes and you get a, you get you know 60 minutes out of him against England. I don't know what that's going to look like. But yeah, I do have some sympathy for Greg Peralta and for this U.S. team back in September, right? Not enough sympathy that that overcomes how bad the performances were, right? They should have been able to do something more against Japan who weren't playing their A team. The U.S. weren't playing their best team either because they, they didn't have it. And against Saudi Arabia, it wasn't good enough. And, and that is the, the end-all be-all. But I do have some sympathy for Greg Peralta it was not, I'm sure, the camp he was hoping for, right? It was not the opportunity to, to, to carry some things over from June, right, where we saw some different tactics. We saw Yunus Musa dropping deeper, and, and I love that look. I think that could be a, a game-changing look for the U.S. in Qatar because I think Yunus Musa is, is a game-changing kind of player. You don't have Musa. You don't have Weah. You don't have Robinson. I mean, it, it's difficult, right? I have sympathy for that. But, man, it is, it is tough for me to draw many meaningful conclusions from that window, at least on the positive side. On the negative side, there should be frustration about what we're seeing on the field. There should be frustration about, you know, how is this team actually trying to play? And it seems like, and the more I think about it, that Berhalter is probably just going to go more pragmatic in the World Cup. Well, then what was the point of doing all of this along the way if in games of the U.S. actually does have to try to possess, they can't do it effectively? So I still struggle with all of those things. I still get frustrated by all of those things. But the injuries did add sort of a strange twist to that last camp. Yeah, you mentioned Eunice Musa, and I know coming into that window, uh, Greg did mention like experimenting with the double pivot and kind of uh, trying some things out in the midfield, and then all of a sudden Musa goes down, and all that's out the window. Yeah, um, yeah, just it, 
on the one hand, it's a, it's probably a good thing that the U.S. got their butts handed to them right before the World Cup, just because you know it, it, the players don't go in overly confident, overly cocky. But at the same time, if you're a fan, uh, considering those latest results. Uh, it's a disappointing thing, and, and that's not the only thing to be disappointed about or worried about with this national team. There's a few position groups that we just don't really know what's going to happen. Yeah. I, I think the uh, one of them is going to be the striker position. As we sit right now, there's four strikers that everybody has circled who they think are going to be the ones to head to Qatar. We don't know which of the four it's going to be, and, and we don't know which of the four is going to get the bulk of the minutes. Uh, those four names are Jesus Ferreira, Ricardo Pepe, Josh Sargent, and Jordan Peefock. Joe, I want you to go through those names and, sure. and give me uh, just sell me on each of them. Tell yeah. me, what, tell me the reason why each of them should be the starting striker for the U.S. Men's National Team. Yeah, and you can play this game, right? I said uh, earlier this week I was talking to Taylor Rockwell on TSS. You know, you can make arguments for all of these players, and, and really, in my mind, there's not like a ton separating each of them in terms of how they change this U.S. team and how they move the needle for this team. But I don't think Jordan Peefock makes this team a guaranteed round of 16 team versus Jesus Ferreira, who does whatever it is. But anyway, to sell you on these players, Jesus Ferreira, I, I think you have to start almost on the defensive end. And same with Josh Argent. These guys run. Ferreira covers ground. He was one of the most aggressive pressing forwards, covered some of the most ground of any number nine in MLS this past year with FC Dallas. He has the reps in the press for Nico Estevez at club level, and he was the guy that Baralter picked to do that pressing job back in January of, or I guess the game was in early February against Costa Rica in 2020 before the world kind of shut down. Ferreira does a lot of the defensive stuff, and his combination play and his ability to link, I think, is better than any other player, any other number nine in this pool. So that's Ferreira. Ricardo Pepe, there is an aspect here for Greg Baralter. Now, I don't really buy into this as a, as a neutral but there's an aspect for Greg Berhalter where I think loyalty is the biggest argument here. He, Ricardo Pepe is the player, let's not forget, who scores the, the go-ahead goal or gets the U.S. back into the game against Honduras away at the end of that first World Cup qualifying window where the U.S. had talked a big game about getting nine points and had two coming into that game against Honduras. So things were testy at that point, and, and people were feeling that angst, I think, both inside the U.S. locker room and outside of it as well. Pepe comes on and scores that goal, and you can see Berhalter rewarding him and, and trying to encourage him and, and help him develop ever since then. Josh Sargent, I think, is, is probably been the best of those number nines consistently, at least of the European contingent this season. He's been shunted out to the wing a decent amount, but between some minutes as the nine with Norwich and Timo Pukki's been out and still some productive performances on the wing. I, I really do like Josh Sargent, and I hope he's involved in that World Cup squad. I also thought he was the brightest number nine back in September. It's, it's not much, but it is something. And then, and then Jordan Pifak is his biggest asset is being different than all of those other players. It's being taller. It's being better in the air. It's being that change of pace option. It's being that plan B or plan C even for the U.S. in the group stage. I also think Jordan Pifak should be there. For me, Sam, you didn't ask, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. I, I would love to see Josh Sargent, Jesus Ferreira, and Jordan Pifak in Qatar. I'm not sure that – I'm, I'm not going to burn the house down, right, if it's Ricardo Pepe instead of one of those three players. Like I, like I said, I don't think it matters all that much in the grand scheme of things, but if you're talking about maximizing this team's potential – I'm not. I'm just not sure that Pepe is all the way there yet. Despite scoring some goals in the Eredivisie, I would go with the other three. I, I'm in complete agreement with you as far as I don't see any of these players offering so much more than the other players that it's not even a discussion. I think it's the absolute discussion. I'm curious. Do you have a favorite of the three to watch? I think Ferreira is my favorite just because he does some smooth things on the ball that I don't think any of those other three can do. It's either Ferreira or Sargent for me. Sargent's going to get in the scrap in a way that, you know, none of those other three players are. And that might be another argument for him. 
Like if Peralta is going to come into this, this World Cup and scrap, like and say, all right, we are going to be the same team we were against Mexico in the Nations League or against Mexico in the Gold Cup or, you know, pick, pick the World Cup qualifier out of the hat. I think Josh Sargent is probably the best number nine to do that stuff. So I, I do like watching Sargent get in the scrap, but technically and aesthetically, it's, it's Ferreira. Yeah, it's, it's crazy how in line we are on this. I mean, uh, my three strikers that I picked were uh, Ferreira, Sargent, and Pifak. Uh, I, I was leaving Pepe at home, and, and I do think that Greg Berhalter has, has a, a favoritism for Pepe that, sure. that seems to go beyond a little bit of, of what we're seeing from the players. Which, which uh, started to cut in, Sam. I, I think there's an aspect of that that is natural, right? And, and that's why I specified, like, you know, being on the outside looking in, I, I don't have any sort of emotional attachment. I know... You should try to distance yourself as a manager in the situation. You should try to separate those two things. But like, there's a certain aspect, I think, even of camaraderie in the locker room. And I, mm-hmm. I don't know how to measure this, right? It's intangible. But Ricardo Pepe does sort of rescue this team in World Cup qualifying. I'm sure he's a guy that is well-liked in and around the program, right? I mean, there's all of these intangibles that we can't measure because we're not there for the day-to-day. I'm, I'm still not saying that bringing Pepe would be the right thing. If, I already said it's not what I would choose to do. But I can imagine if I lived the same life that Beralter has lived and experienced the same things that it would be a lot more difficult for me to make that call. That's true. That's true. And, and teams are made up of human beings and there's yeah. personal connections and all that going on. Uh, I, this, this isn't a hill that I'm choosing to die on. I'm comfortable with any of these guys. Uh, I just hope one of them puts it in the back of the net. Let's move <laughs> on to a position group that I, I think was the strength of this team coming in. But at this point, I'm just not sure about right now. It's the midfield. I mean, mm. it sounds like the MMA midfield is, is a thing that everybody's comfortable with. But beyond that is the real question mark. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Luca De La Torre arrived at Celta Vigo this season. And, and the big hope was that he was going to have a nice run of games and be a really a, another option for that midfield. Uh, should Eunice Musa or Wes McKinney or whatever happens, um, Luca De La Torre would be there. Not only has he not gotten that run of form, he hasn't played much at all. But now he's injured, and there's question marks as if he's even going to be available for Qatar. Beyond him, it's a it's a bleak. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we've seen Kellen Acosta play in that position at times, and it's just never really looked good um, as far as him being able to play with the ball at his feet and pick out passes and do the shuttling job that we expect out of that position. Uh, we see Brennan Aronson play there with mixed results. Yeah. Uh, there's rumors, or everybody speculates about Gio Reyna potentially playing there. Uh, what do you make of this uh, midfield position group? Yeah, it's tough right now. And it puts a little extra spotlight on Greg Berhalter's decision not to bring either Eric Williamson or George Mihailovic to the, the domestic camp that, that took place or is still yeah. taking place. I don't know what the timing was, but neither of those two players were on the roster. Now Georgie's over in the Netherlands and, and basically looks like he's out of contention for this World Cup. Don't know that for sure, but it's tough. There's not a lot of depth here. I think we're looking at players like Christian Roldan, we're looking at players like Kellen Acosta and Brendan Aronson, I think are the three that sort of come to mind for me as far as depth in that number eight spot. I would be surprised, given Luca De La Torre's injury timeline, which I think would put him back based off the three weeks that Celta Vigo announced on November 18th. But I, how much is he going to have trained? He's not going to have played, certainly. What is that going to look like? We don't know. Both uh, that, that November 18th day is after both of the U.S.'s World Cup roster releases. So one is on the 9th. And, and that's sort of the informal one. It's not finalized. And the, the official date that everyone has to have their rosters locked in is November 14th. Are you going to risk taking De La Torre when he, he's, he might have a setback? I mean, there's so many challenges here. I think this means we are certainly going to see Cal Acosta get some minutes as a number eight in, in maybe even a game like or maybe England, but that's only if maybe McKenney and Musa aren't ready to go. I don't know what that's going to look like. McKenney also dealing with a little bit of an injury right now, but it doesn't look as severe as De La Torre. 
I, I do think we'll probably also see Aronson a little bit deeper, maybe in the in the first game of the group stage or the last game. Either Wales or Iran, when you're not quite as concerned about their their top talent, although there is still plenty of it for those teams. Maybe you try to stack the attack a bit more and you go with a look that's somewhat closer to what we saw the U.S. run out against Morocco, where it was Musa and Adams and Aronson pressing as a midfield three, and then Aronson would shift higher into the right half space and it would transition into more of a 3-2-5 in possession. Then the question is, well, who's the third center back? And there's, there's complications here, but these are the things you have to deal with when you're dealing with a bunch of injured players three weeks before the World Cup starts. Speaking of bringing potential injured players to the World Cup and, and dealing with uh, the holes in the lineup, let's move on to the center back position uh, where, oh boy, it's been a struggle for a long time now. Um, Chris Richards was the player that I think everybody had circled as this guy who was going to come in and add solidity to the lineup. He was going to be that player who could um, who could uh, allow the team to press. He had the athleticism to cover. He could win balls uh, at midfield, but he could also, you know, he was the best of all worlds. He gets the move to city or to palace and he just hasn't gotten much uh, playing time at all. He's been injured. The reports now are that he might not be in training by the time Greg has to select the roster. Uh, so at this point, we're looking at the potential center back options and, you know, we just played a game where I got you to uh, name all the reasons why each striker should, should play. It seems like you could do the opposite with center back. Yeah. It's way easier to say, this is the reason why this guy shouldn't be the center back. This is the reason why this guy shouldn't be the center back. Thoughts on the center back position. And I'm going to press you. I want to name, name the four guys who Greg's going to call um, to be the center backs in Qatar. So I think the guys who Greg is going to call are, are Walker Zimmerman and Aaron Long, certainly. I would be shocked if he doesn't call those two players up. I would say Chris Richards, if he can get back in training. I don't even think he has to have fully played. I think Berhalter knows that Chris Richards is a good player, and I think he sees how shallow his pool is right now. CCV also dealing with a little bit of a knock for Celtic right now. I think if you choose between those two injured players, you're, you're, banking, on, uh, you're banking on Chris Richards over, over Cameron Cutter-Vickers. And I'm, I'm going to toss Tim Ream into the mix as well. Berhalter has, has played with him before as recently as 2019. He wasn't really involved in World Cup qualifying, but he's been playing well in the, in, in, uh, in the Premier League with Fulham. He doesn't fit Berhalter's stated profile for that center back spot, but in a tournament where you're already lacking for experience and you're, you're certainly lacking for depth in that, uh, in that area, I don't think you could do a lot worse than Tim Ream. I don't think you could do a lot better than Tim Ream for that maybe that last game against Iran trying to break down a, a block or, or against Wales or, or somewhere in there, I would go with, or, or what I think Berhalter would go with rather, would be Zimmerman and Long, Richards and Ream. But man, I don't feel great about that prediction. Yeah, you, you bring up an interesting point there because, you know, I I was thinking that we were going to bring four center backs, but if Chris Richards is not all the way healthy, you can certainly bring five center backs. Having sure. a 26-man lineup uh, affords us that luxury and you could, pluck somebody away from another part of the lineup. Uh, so that's, that's definitely a case there. Um, a, a name that is, that has come into vogue recently is Austin trusty. Yeah, it's uh, true. He's, I mean, it's very unlikely that he gets called in. I mean, there's just it, knowing everything we know about Greg Berhalter. It just seems highly unlikely that he would bring somebody in off the street. That's never been with a national team right before the most important uh, tournament of his tenure. But your thoughts on Austin trusty. I haven't seen as much of him at Birmingham as I would like to, but everything that I have seen has been pretty good, pretty encouraging. You have comments from his teammates about, you know, we've never seen a player adjust to the championship as well as Austin Trusty has. I, I think you could do, I, I think he would be a strong option for this team. I don't feel great about Austin Trusty starting many of these games, but 
if you're looking for a body, and, and Trusty has the profile that's a little closer to what Berhalter has stated about, you know, he, he's looking for center backs who are basically not John Brooks and, and kind of not Tim Ream at this point either, despite the fact that I just mentioned him. He wants mobility. He wants players that can step up in the press. He wants players that can cover ground and behind. I think Trusty does a lot of that stuff well. Whether Berhalter will choose to go with him over even someone like Mark McKenzie, who I didn't mention, I don't love Mark McKenzie's game, to be honest with you. I don't think he fits Berhalter's profile all that well. He's kind of like a, a tweener in between being the super athletic, super technical center back. He's not really either. He's kind of just okay at both of those things. McKenzie probably has a leg up over Trusty, and we did see McKenzie back in September. So it's, it's complicated right now, but I, I would not be against seeing Austin Trusty called up out of the blue. Yeah, it's, I, I'm right there with you. I, the, McKenzie scares the hell out of me, man. I think of all the center backs. I, I know that Aaron Long gets all the headlines and all the, uh, the, the hate from Twitter and all this stuff, but I, McKenzie's the one that scares me the most, honestly, out of the group. I, I want to I play a game with you, Joe. Okay. I want to play a, a game that, that I've been fascinated with. I asked this question to uh, Alessi Lawless, and it is uh, the U.S. men's national team bizarro world scenario. I'm going to give okay. you four options that I think are, are plausible in the world of, of American soccer of, of, of the 2022 cycle. And you have to pick which option you think would give us the, the best result for the 2022 cycle. Okay? okay. Okay. So the first option is Josie Altidore remains 2018 <laughs> Josie Altidore for the entire 2022 cycle. You're heading through World Cup qualifying in Qatar with Josie as your unquestioned team leader, the guy with all the experience, and the goal scorer. So that's your okay. option one. Option two, Darlington Nagby decides to play for the U.S. men's national team during the 2022 cycle. This is especially helpful, I think, during the Gold Cup, during Nations League, during those first two windows when Yunus Musa hadn't come into the team yet. The MMA midfield hadn't really formulated yet. Uh, The U.S. is putting out Sebastian Legette and uh, Kellen Acosta, particularly in two very important games, I think, uh, ultimately for the national team, which were the Canada home game that Weston McKinney was suspended for and the Panama away yeah. game. Both results were, we, we uh, lost points by very slim margins. One was a loss. One was a tie and, and both would have had huge impacts um, uh, on the U S men's national team. Had we gotten better results, you get Nagby in that midfield. It changes a lot of things. Third option is miles Robinson never gets injured. So we have him for the entire cycle. Yeah. And then the th- fourth option is instead of hiring Greg Berhalter, the U.S. The US soccer hires Tata Martino at the beginning of 2019. Oh, those, oh, those are, are so options. good. <laughs> okay, so the, the ones that I am most tempted by, there's one that I'm least tempted by. Let me walk you through that way. Darlington Nagby is a great player. I don't think he moves the needle as much for this team. I would love to have Darlington Nagby involved, and I think he does so many things so well. For me, Yunus Musa can scratch a lot of those itches. Now, it would be great to have two of them, two really press-resistant, great ball carriers, good ball progressors in this team. But I think Musa can do enough and is sort of like almost even a new and improved version of Darlington Nagby, and we'll see more of that over the next one, two, three, four, five years to the next World Cup, whatever it is. So I would rule that one out. I'm tempted. This is the the next one that I will rule out, but I'm tempted by it, by Josie Altidore. Um, I, I think he would change this team. And prime Josie Altidore would be like the perfect number nine for Greg Berhalter, just because I think he was a really good player, right? I, I don't think he gets as much credit now as maybe Josie would deserve. So I, I'm ruling that out in favor of one of these two, right? So I, I'm ruling it out in favor of uh, of the last two, which is the center back option from Miles Robinson and the manager option. 
I'm going to, uh, I don't know. I don't know, Sam. I'm going to rule out the Tata Martino one and, and go for a player because I think we at times overrate the impact that managers have on games. And I, I do think Tata Martino is a really good coach. And I was one of the people saying, you know, after both of the finals that the U.S. beat Mexico in, Mexico was, was kind of good in both of those games, at least in certain aspects. They, they played the U.S. off the field for stretches, much less so in World Cup qualifying. But in those two finals back in, in the summer, of 2021, I thought Tato Martino's Mexico team looked really good. So I do think Tato Martino's a good coach, but I want to go with a tangible on-field change, and that is Miles Robinson. We've got an article coming out for Backfield at some point over the next couple of weeks leading up to the World Cup, which is basically the numbers guy, the stats guy to winning the World Cup. And you go back through and look at previous editions of the tournament, and consistently teams that have strong defenses that are in like the top five of the tournament and goals allowed. So they're allowing the, the, some of the fewest goals in the competition do better and advance to further stages than the teams that are in the top five for goal score. And that's why I end up going with Miles Robinson because I think he's a difference maker at center back for this team. I, I think we all feel so much better about this group with Miles Robinson and Walker Zimmerman or Miles Robinson and, and whoever coming into Qatar than we do with, this, with the picture right now. You add an extra body into the back line. You add one of the best center backs in the U.S. pool back into this team, someone who can do what Baralder wants to do and you feel safer about this group. I think the defense improves that much more and the U.S.'s odds of advancing at the World Cup grow that much more as well. It's, it's a good answer. I think uh, I, I put this question on Twitter about an hour ago and I think the two answers that are leading right now are... Wait, can I Josie guess? Can I guess? Door. Yeah, I was going to say Josie and Tata. That's, that's my guess. It's actually Josie and uh, Miles Robinson. Nice. Okay, all right. Tata's not leading. I do... I, I, I think people are... I, 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 I would really love to see the national team with Darlington Nagby. In oh, there. same. same. I, I think that would be. A, a, I think people are underrating that player. I think a lot of it has to do with uh, Alexi Lawless's tweet, and then like that created a bunch of backlash towards Nagby, which is you know it is what it is. Um, but the Tata Martino uh, storyline is very interesting because back whenever the U.S. were searching for a coach, that was when Tata Martino was at his peak, coming off of Atlanta United. A lot of people wanted that Tata as the coach of the national team. Yeah. Uh, fast forward a few years later, and Tata is just persona not grata for Mexico yeah. and, and is getting run out of town over there. Um, it, it is being held responsible, I think, for a Mexican national team that uh, is just coming to the end of a cycle of players that are kind of aging out right now. Um, and maybe you can blame Tata a little bit for not bringing in more youth players. But at the same time, are those youth players as good as the players that they're mm. uh, replacing? You know, it's a difficult thing. You mentioned that you think that um, national team managers do not have as much impact on results as they're sort of giving credit for. You know, I, I tend to think the same thing. Um, it's a frustrating thing in this particular cycle because so much of the discourse has been surrounding Greg Berhalter and what mm. he brings to this national team. Um, and if you suggest that there might be other reasons otherwise for some of the things going on, uh, for the national team, like you're labeled as an apologist or whatever. And it's like, it's not really the case. I just don't think the manager has as much impact on the, on the results as, as you guys are making it out to be. What do you think the, the role of the manager is, especially at the international level? Yeah, I do think there is a part of it that is tactical, right? Of course there is about setting a game model, establishing how this, this group, whatever that group looks like, is supposed to go out there and win soccer games and is supposed to go out there and play soccer games. And I, I do think it's fair to criticize Greg Berhalter for what that game model is or is not at this point. I do think that's part of it, right? Other parts are, are recruitment. And I think Berhalter's done a good job of that, even setting Berhalter aside. Recruitment is a, is a part of this, as is you know, building sort of a, a culture in the program. And that is, that's one thing that I think is, is so delicate or was so delicate about the U.S. after the last World Cup qualifying cycle. Yeah. When you fail to make it to the World Cup, 
confidence is shaken. Like the program was, was kind of in tatters at that point in terms of the personnel, in terms of like morale, all of those things that was gone. And it is the national team manager's job to do that stuff. And, and it may be the most important bit is player selection, right? Coming from window to window, players win games, right? Managers have certainly an, and uh, so sort of sort of an influence in some of these decisions and how things play out on the field. But ultimately, players are the ones kicking the soccer balls and, and having mm-hmm. good players is more important than anything else. Right. So, you know, Pep Guardiola could go and become the manager of Trinidad and Tobago tomorrow. And I got to break it to you all. Like they're not probably going to make it to the World Cup. Pep Guardiola is a great manager. I, I firmly believe that. But there is a limit to these things. So picking the right players, picking the best possible players to, to help the team succeed that I think is probably the most important role of the national team manager. And you can quibble with, with how well Berhalter has done all of those things. I'm open to all of those arguments. I have my own criticisms about that, but I think that's, that's probably the biggest thing that a manager can do for their national team. I always do this like thought experiment experiment in my head. It's like, what level of players could I have and beat Pep Guardiola with, (laughs) you know, like if you give me Real Madrid and Pep Guardiola has like, uh, Trinidad and Tobago. Like, I think I'm going to beat him. Yeah. I, I think I'm going to crush Pep. Uh, no matter how much time he has, and, sure. and what, how many uh, lines he's drawing on the field and, you know, how many conversations <laughs> he's having with those players. I think I can just roll the ball on the field with Real Madrid and beat him. I think, which, um, which is kind of what Carlo Ancelotti does now, in my opinion, anyway, with Real Madrid. So it wouldn't be that different other than the fact that you maybe don't look quite as cool as Ancelotti does smoking a cigar, but all that, all that aside, I think it's about the same. It's such a, it's such an interesting discussion, man, because we we put so much stock into into tactics and 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 how that all works and 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 how important it is. But then you watch soccer games, and uh, granted, we are biased by like the incredible moments, by like mm. those really sexy passing sequences that lead to goals, and just really nice movements and, and intelligent things that players do. But I think we we don't always see that so many goals are just like a player makes a mistake, you know. Sure. Like, uh, the, the keeper doesn't beat Brennan Aronson and he's able to take it off of him and, and score a goal or like a corner kick or, or just, yeah. there's so many unsexy goals that, that aren't necessarily tied to any type of like greater tactical um, system or anything sure. like that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and sort of as a counterpoint to this, I mean, I agree with everything you just said. I, I do think, you know, we, we, I think we overrate how much managers impact games strategically, right? I do think that's part of this, but there is an undeniable importance to setting up a team with a competent plan, right? And I, I think we see that, honestly, Sam, on the women's side for the U.S. right now with the U.S. women's national team, tons of talented players in that mix, tons of exceptional players. Their, their floor as a, as a team, as a group, it's so high. It's higher than, you know, 95% of teams in, in women's international soccer. But I think you watch them play and, and they get into the final third and it's like there's no, there's no cohesive identity. There's no clear ideas of how they want to create chances. And that's when having a great manager, a manager who believes in the importance of those things, who believes in, in preparing their teams as well as they can to break teams down, to create chances and to limit chances for the opposition. That's when having those, those final third patterns to get into the, the best spots you can to then cut the ball back and create chances and score goals. That's when that stuff is important. And I think we're seeing the limitations that a team, even with a, a team with as high of a floor as the U.S. Women's National Team has, we're seeing their limitations right now before our very eyes. So yeah, I, yeah, the, the manager certainly has a non-zero impact on the uh, on, on the outcome of games. And with that being said, um, so much of the discourse right now for the national team is Greg Berhalter. What's your confidence in Greg Berhalter as we head into Qatar? It's not 
all that high, to that be honest. That says a lot, Joe. <laughs> I'm not sure it's ever been all that high, though, right? Going throughout this, I, I think Greg Baralter is a smart dude. He knows more about soccer than I will ever forget, right? I mean, he, he will forget more about soccer than I will ever know. That's the expression. Nailed it. First try. Um, he's, I think he's a smart dude. I, I don't have a ton of confidence in this team uh, and in him, really, either. I don't know how this team's going to play for sure. I don't feel confident that the team really understands and is, is all on the same page. So I don't feel great about it, Sam, to be honest with you. And I, I'd be surprised if there are many folks out there who did right now. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, let me uh, throw out a scenario to you that a lot of people have been saying on uh, in the soccer discourse in, in, in Twitter and on uh, Reddit and wherever else. What if, what if Jurgen Klinsmann had this group of players? How do you, what, what differences do you think we'd see? Do you think we'd be in a better place right now, a worse place right now? What are your thoughts on that? I certainly don't think we'd be in a better place right now. I think we would see a, a little bit more haphazard tactical variety than I think we've already kind of seen. I, in my impression of Klinsman's time in charge, and this was sort of before my, my main time covering the national team. So I'm not the best person on this, but my impression is that there was a lot of outer skelter decisions that were made and sort of you know rugs being pulled out from under players and, and on the strategy side as well. So I, I don't think the U.S. looks dramatically better. The, the biggest thing or... or, or or certainly looks all that much better at all. I think the biggest thing for this U.S. team, and maybe the reason why my confidence has most been shaken in this team, relates to conversations we've already had, Sam. It's about the injuries, right? I think as young and as talented as this team is, and as good as I think they can become two, three, four years from now, as we head into 2026, which I think could be a really good chance for this team to show who they are when they're in their primes, I don't think there's a lot of depth right now in this team. We've already talked about it. Center back, question mark. A goalkeeper, Matt Turner has been dealing with a groin injury. If he's not ready to go, I'm not really confident in any of the other options. I'm certainly not confident in, in Zach Steffen to do that job. You look at the number nine spot and we're talking about, you know, splitting hairs between maybe slightly average contributors. You look at the wing and I do think there is depth there, but that's kind of it, right? Maybe the wing and right back are the two spots that I, I kind of feel okay about. That's my biggest concern for this team headed into the World Cup. It's not really Greg Berhalter. It's not really, you know, how good and how talented some of these young players are. It's are they ready now? And are they even going to be on the field right now? That's the stuff that I think limits your ceiling as a national team program. The U.S. has a high ceiling and they will reach that ceiling or at least get closer to it over the next few years. But I am I'm concerned about them getting up close to that range in this particular term. Yeah, it's, it's not just the, the injuries, but it's it's what what version of these players are we going to get, man? I mean, mm -hmm. we see it feels like watching Christian Pulisic. Like, there's there's a big range of uh, yeah. how the quality Christian Pulisic has game to game. There's yeah. some games where he looks like the best attacking player on the field for Chelsea, and other player other games where you kind of understand why he's not in that starting rotation. I think same thing could be said for Weston McKinney right now, uh, where he just ever since his injury has not quite gotten back to those heights. There's games where he's influential. There's games where he's scoring goals. But I don't know if we've seen that truly dominant Weston McKinney that we saw prior to the injury again. I mean, Brendan Aronson looks great week in and week out for Leeds, but we've also seen him with the national team uh, just come into games and just not do much of anything, especially yeah. when he's being deployed in a midfield position. Uh, seems to be getting pushed around a whole lot. Um, there, there's a lot of question marks about even, even the stars on this team, what we're going to get. We already mentioned – uh, Gio Reyna is a player who I think could add a tremendous amount to this group, but there's questions about how healthy he's going to be and how, how available he's going to be. So yeah, I, I, I totally agree that there's, there's just a lot to worry about right now. Yeah, there is, there is a lot to worry about. There is also like a lot of things to be excited about, right? I, I think as many for, for every downside, I just said, there is something to latch onto, to be encouraged by. 
you know, this is our first chance to see these young players on the world stage. And that is, it's cool, right? To see Christian Pulisic, who is this incredibly undeniably talented player, go out there and, and try to show it, right? Show it against yeah. England, especially like that game in particular could be so formulate. So, so it could, it could form our opinions of this team and could really shape how they're viewed, not just here in the U S but around the world as well. So I, I think at the moment, my worry does sort of outweigh my excitement and my positivity, but like, Man, as young and talented as, as this team is and as sort of off and on as they can be, that's a negative, but it also could turn out to be just this crazy fun ride as well during the group stage. It's interesting whenever we think about, um, I just talked about Jurgen Klinsmann, but thinking back into that 2014 World Cup, that the, what we were um, heading into there, like right before the World Cup, uh, Klinsmann cl- cuts Landon Donovan, which is just the biggest story ever in, in American soccer. And and all the things that that did to the team. Um, you, you have rumors that there's dissension within the locker room and different groups emerging heading into that World Cup. I mean, one of the big storylines was uh, Michael Bradley and Jermaine Jones and how they played together. And, and was that ever going to be unlocked? And we were ever going to see the best out of those two players. Um, and, and then in, right at the beginning of the first game, Josie Altidore, the star striker, goes down. And uh, we didn't really have backup options for that particular position. So all of a sudden, Clint Dempsey has to be the striker for the national team. And somehow, some way, they get out of the group and they come within a goal of a, or like within a moment of, of beating Belgium and going on to the quarterfinals. And it's just it's just a testament to this tournament's a special thing. And just anything yeah. can happen once you get there. 100 percent. And that's what that's what Berlter has talked about. And I think this is a, a wise thing. Like there's two tournaments here. This is how Berhalter would, would say. You know, there's the, the first tournament, which is the group stage. And you gotta you got to be good enough. There's a little bit of margin for error, right? You have a little bit of wiggle room. A result doesn't go your way. You don't play well. You can bounce back. And then there's the second tournament, which is the knockout round. And that is like pure chaos. And, and most of the time, the better teams are going to win. But you have a shot no matter who you are. Once you get to that second tournament, the U.S.'s goal for this competition should be get to the should be getting to the second tournament. And after that, like, you know, roll the dice out, right? I mean, do whatever you can to continue moving on, whatever that looks like, however pragmatic it is or not. I mean, the goal for the U.S. in my mind is to get out of the group. And then at that point, like, who knows what's going to happen? Okay, so we just spent, uh, I guess, 40 minutes kind of uh, lamenting our position in the world as a, as a national team. Let's take a look at our group for a second. I'm going to put sure. some pressure on you and, and try to get some predictions out of you. We start off against Wales, and this is a Wales team that um, they have a, a, a standout player in Gareth Bale who just hasn't played much soccer in the last few years, honestly. Uh, he's at LAFC right now. There seems to be a mysterious injury that's keeping him out, uh, kind of different stories there. There's uh, people thinking that he's, he's just waiting to play in the World Cup, and we, we don't really know. But what we do know is that beyond Gareth Bale, uh, Aaron Ramsey was one of their star players for a long time. He's kind of fallen off a lot. He's not getting a ton of minutes in France right now. And then beyond those two players, it's a very young Wales squad, or it's a young Wales squad that maybe doesn't have the star power uh, that they did four years ago um, that, that are kind of in a rebuilding mode. Then we go to an England team that has just traditionally always underperformed at the international stage. They come in as one of the favorites for the tournament, but there's a lot of question marks regarding, um, you know, which of their stars is going to play or are they going to be able to uh, get through the, the group and, and finally show what they can do. And, you know, there's just always a circus around England. Uh, and, and then we get to Iran, which is a team that admittedly is, is top heavy. They have 
very good striker, uh, two very good strikers. One may not be available. Sure. We're, we're not sure on that. Um, but beyond them, um, they have a, not a lot of talent in midfield. Um, their the defenders seemingly are pretty good, but they're defenders that um, don't really get tested in, in, in Europe much. I mean, these are guys that play for various leagues um, in the Middle East. Yeah. So, you know, take that for what you will. Uh, these, this is a team that performed really well during the uh, Asian World Cup qualifying. Uh, but what is that going to mean once they get into the, uh, the World Cup stage? They're one of the lowest picked teams in the World Cup. So what are your thoughts on how the U.S. is going to perform in each of these games? Um, and do you think that they get through? Uh, whether they get through or not, I, I truly don't know. I think they absolutely have the ability to do so. Uh, it, it wouldn't surprise me if they do. It wouldn't surprise me if they don't, frankly. I think this is one of the most well-balanced groups between the, the second, third, and fourth teams in, in these groups. So the U.S. is a pot two team. They end up with Iran and, and Wales as the, the pot three and pot four teams. All of those teams have quality, and uh, I think it's going to be tricky. But to go through game by game, the Wales match feels like a great time for me to pick up three points. Right, That feels like a time you want to go out and set the tone. Wales is going to be a little bit more reactive. If you can try to take away Gareth Bale somewhat on the break, and that's going to be a tough game for Walker Zimmerman in particular, and, and maybe you know, whoever else is surrounding him in that back line. But I think you go out and really try to push for three points in that opening game. If you don't get it, then you can have two more chances to really try to, to pick up at least four points, right? Maybe you go for, and this brings us to England. I think you go for, obviously, at least a draw against England, but that feels to me like a very possible outcome. England win is the most likely outcome in that game because they, they're just the better and more talented team. But under Gareth Southgate, they're not like this free-flowing, attacking, super good at creating chances kind of team. They don't do that stuff. They are they play within themselves. I think at times they look like less than the sum of their parts, which sort of sounds familiar about the U.S. men's national team. But I think that could be a game where the U.S. could conceivably just be an absolute pest and, and force England to try to break them down. But like I said, I'm not sure England are all that good at doing that. So maybe there's a point there. In the Iran game, a lot can happen based off of what's already happened in the group at that point. Iran might need to go for it. They might need to be more open, which could sit the U.S. They might just need to sit deep and, and think that that's the best way they can go about that matchup. But I think likely against Wales and Iran, the U.S. will control more of the ball. I think England will have most of the ball in, in that game on Black Friday. Man. This, this could go a whole lot of different ways. I think if the U.S. has, you know, I think it's not impossible for them to have four points headed into the final match, which would be a, a pretty darn good spot to be in. The anticipation is absolutely killing me because, like, like you said, it can go so many different directions. And I think a lot is riding on that first game against Wales. If the yeah. U.S. can get three points there, it really just changes the paradigm of how we approach everything. Joe, I know that you're a really busy guy in the world of American soccer, and you've been working on a ton of different things. Can you tell me about some of the coverage you'll be doing uh, leading up to and during the World Cup? Yeah, absolutely. So you can read a lot of the stuff that, that we're doing, that myself and, and Jay Sam Jones and Kieran Doyle, a bunch of other folks are doing, Justin Egan, Cameron Meyer, John Morsey. Uh, you can read our World Cup coverage on uh, backheel.com. That's backheel.com. You can find all of it. It's free. It's not behind a paywall. There's no ads. Go check it out. We're really excited for some of the stuff we're doing. I mentioned that, uh, that how to win the World Cup by the numbers piece. We also have a piece by, uh, by Cameron Meyer that's coming out about the, the defining goals of Greg Berhalter's World Cup. Uh, about his tenure, excuse me, leading up to the World Cup. You know, what are the moments that have been really, you know, forming of how we view him as a manager? Go check that out. It'll be out next week, I believe. And then we also just launched a new podcast called The Backheel Show. It'll be out on, on Monday, November 7th. So depending on when people are listening or watching this, go check that out. Um, we'll have episodes every weekday leading up to the World Cup and then every single day about the U.S. Men's national team. 
during their run in Qatar, however long that is. And then we'll zoom out after the World Cup to look at American soccer as a whole. And then one last thing, Sam, if you'll allow me, tackle.com, T-A-K-L-D.com is another project I'm working on that helps curate the best American soccer content and sends it out to subscribers. You can sign up for free or you can sign up for a paid subscription. Either way, that's tackle, T-A-K-L-D.com. The man does not rest. And I don't know. I guess you'll sleep in December. We'll figure that out. That's right. I'm going to hibernate after the World Cup. That's the plan. Joe Lowry, thank you so much for joining us and, and giving us a little bit more insight on this World Cup. Guys, thank you so much for watching. If you haven't yet, consider hitting that subscribe button. Hit the like button to support the channel. If you really want to support the channel, you can become a member uh, and directly support everything we do here at the Yank Report. Thank you guys so much for watching. My name is Sam, and this is the Yank Report brought to you by Bet Online. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.